start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And this week, we are diving into science fiction and science fact. We are! Because with us is Kevin R. Grazier, Ph.D., who has, uh, he's a real space scientist, first of all. And secondly, he served as science advisor for several television series and movies, including uh, uh, Sci-Fi Channel, uh, the TNT series, uh, uh, Sci-Fi Channel uh, series Defiance, Defiance, the TNT series Falling Skies, and the film Gravity. And uh, you also did the same role on uh, Battlestar Galactica, a, a couple of movies of that. And uh, you also produced a an award-winning short, DNE Do Not Erase. Welcome to the show. We've got a lot to talk about. Hi, thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah. So, so how does a mild-mannered science guy get into the television business? I mean, goodness knows these people need science advice. Um, you know, I, I think right now science is as good as it's ever been because Hollywood has taken science a little more seriously. But back to your question is um, how one gets into this. It's kind of a, there's, a, there's a difference how you would get into it now and how I got into it. So I'll, I'll give you both answers. How I got into it is I was a graduate student at UCLA. And uh, this was during the time when Star Trek Voyager was in its first run. And a friend who, um, we had done some college radio together um, back at, at Purdue. Um, we were both a little disappointed with Voyager because we thought it had a great you know, um, promise that it really wasn't living up to. And if you've watched the first three seasons, they really can't figure out what show they are, they want to be. They really didn't figure that out to the fourth season when they brought Seven of Nine aboard. And then they were much more consistent. And the last four seasons are really good. But back then, Paramount had a procedure that for for vetting um, unsolicited scripts, meaning that you, as a someone who um, writes a script and doesn't have an agent, could send a script in, and there was a process by which it would get read. So my friend and I, who were a little disappointed with Voyager at this point, decided we would try this. And you know, Paramount was pretty honest with what, what the situation was. They said they'd send you a little packet, and they would send you know they would say. We get about 3,000 scripts a year. A good outcome happens to roughly single digits. So, you know, order of magnitude, we're looking at one in a thousand odds. But if you want to send us your script, we will make you two promises. 
it'll get read, and between eight weeks and eight months, you'll get it back. And beyond that, we're going to make you no other promises. So my friend and I wrote this script in, in, in our copious spare time because I was a grad student. So I was like, right. you know, oh, yeah, yeah. So I was pretty busy. But we wrote the script and we thought we had a good story. We were pretty happy with it. Sent it in and then pretty much forgot about it because we were both very busy. And then seven months to the day, I get a phone call from uh, the executive producer's assistant, Barbara. And Barbara says, hey, Jerry loves your, your story. It goes in a direction we don't really want to go, so we can't use it verbatim. But we think your writing has promise. We'd like to invite you to come in and, and pitch. Wow. And so, so yeah, so we got invited to pitch invitation. So, and I say we, my friend um, mm -hmm. lived in Ohio, so he, you know, basically we come up with story ideas and then he would, um, and then I would go in and, and do the pitch. And, um, pitched several times and the people to whom I pitched most often were two people um, both in their first job as staff writers in the industry one was Michael Taylor who wrote what I think still is the best episode of Star Trek ever it was a Deep Space Nine episode called The Visitor and um, this was Michael's first staff writing job and I would end up working with him on Galactica years later and, and several other shows but the other person I pitched to was Brian Fuller yeah okay that Brian Fuller, yes. Yeah, that's awesome. first that name we know. Sorry? I say, that name we know. Yeah, okay. So, and you, you know, we kept in, in contact. And they, they never, I never officially sold anything. So, but I kept in contact with Brian and Michael over the years. And then when um, I was at a convention and Ron Moore showed his vision for the new Galactica, he showed us some scenes that they'd shot um, for the pilot. I, I, knowing that they had, you know, they had written things together on Star Trek, I, I contacted Brian and said, Brian, would you ever be be so kind as to introduce me to to Ron if they're going to hire a science advisor? And that's a complete lie. What I really said was, Brian, please, 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 please introduce me. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and he actually, he did. So, um, you know, and with Brian's good word, my interview with Ron was pretty perfunctory. And I went in and uh, we, we chatted for a, sh a short while and... Um, and I left there with the series Bible and the um, uh, and the scripts for Thirty Three and Water, the first two episodes. Well, that's how I got in. And then, um, you know, they say that actually getting your second job is harder than the first because first, you know, is a big is your big break, and by by number two, you have established uh, a track record, good or bad. But what happened was um, the writers for the series Eureka were sharing the Rock Hudson building at Universal with the writers from Battlestar Galactica. And one day at a Getting to Know You lunch, the writer's assistants were talking, and one said, hey, how do you deal with your technical problems? Oh, we have this guy over at JPL. And an hour later, I got a phone call. So <laughs> that is how I cool. wound up on Eureka, my second job. And then from that point forward, you know, when you have two popular shows, it's it becomes, we want that guy. Okay. So, um, that's how I got. So it, it wasn't what you know, it's who you know. So in exactly. my case, I knew Brian, and Brian got me, you know, with a good word um, from Brian. I, I got my foot in the door for, for Galactica. What's interesting is years later, um, any, anybody who looks at my Facebook page knows that I'm a big fan of, of pet rats. I have several rats, and, and my, my, um, my Facebook page is a constant stream of cute rat photos, if, in fact, you think rats are cute. I do. But um, if you ever watch the series Hannibal, um, Brian Fuller was the showrunner for Hannibal, uh -huh. and in season two, episode nine, he he and Brian warned me that you remember there was a character named Peter Bernadone. He was an animal trainer. He played with Jeremy Davies, played the role, 
and he was an animal trainer that had um, had traumatic brain injury. So he he wasn't all there, but um, he was in two episodes. And in the second episode, he was um, actually institutionalized, which is probably where he should have been all along. And in the institution that in the where he was that they were taking care of him, he end up we find out that he has kept a pet rat. And Brian named the rat after me. So he introduces his rat to, to Will Graham as this is Kevin. It's totally named after me. <laughs> Brian warned me that they so that so that's I awesome. was a rat on Hannibal. <laughs> that is an unusual anyway, that's one of the odder screen credits we've ever heard. I don't think I got credit for that, but that's okay. They actually <laughs> said, no, but, they but, actually, but you know, you know, you know. Well I mean you and people ask me, did was that named Yeah, actually it was. You know. But today, now let's, let's go at the other way of getting into the industry. Now, it's a lot easier to get into the industry today, though it's harder to get paid. <laughs> uh, yeah. So what happens is the, um, the National Academy of Sciences, which is, you know, was created by Abraham Lincoln to create some you know, high-powered uh, high scientists to advise the government, um, they saw the, the usefulness of getting science as right as possible in TV and film. So they created something called the Science and Entertainment Exchange. Um, they are they have an office at UCLA. No formal connection. That's just where they found office space, and so they um, they have a stable of of scientists who are willing to work as consultants in TV and film. So if you dial literally one eight four four need sci, you will get Rick Lovard or one of its assistants and. Um, if you are a even even if you're a film student, you need help. They will uh, they'll help you out. They might assign you a, a younger scientist. If you're Alfonso Cuarón and and are working on Gravity, you get someone like me, who's an, a more established scientist. But um, but no matter you know what your role in the industry, if you need help, dial Rick and and they will match you up with someone of the the appropriate uh, expertise. And on the same note. If you are a scientist and are interested in getting involved, you dial that same number, one eight four four need sci and say, hey, I'm a scientist, this is my background, and they will interview you. And I'll tell you right now, um, they want to make sure that you are not Dr. No. In other words, um, they will counsel you, they will tell you up front that our goal is to get the science as right as possible while still telling the story the storyteller wants to tell. And, you know, so that means that we're not they're the, we're not the science police and um it's get the science as right as possible um and still tell a good story that's story got to first. be a balancing act i mean it it's is, not like you can tell them on star trek no there really is no such thing as a space warp <laughs> because that's well star trek is a star trek is a um um a different game because he's such a long baseline of stuff um, I interviewed, you know, I have a series of books called Holly Weird Science, working on the third one right now. Oh, good. And, um, you know, the, the Holly Weird Science books are about um, exploring the depiction of science, scientists, and the culture of science in TV and film. And um, um, for one of my interviews, I've interviewed, I've got like 30 hours of interviews with writers, producers, directors. And I was once interviewing Narain Shankar who was the showrunner for The Expanse, and he was on seven years on CSI. But he got his start as science advisor on Star Trek The Next Generation for a season. <laughs> Actually, and he was also um, Ron Moore's roommate at Cornell. Ah, oh, that would do but, it. What's who you know? But um, I, was, you know, I was talking to Narain about being a, a science advisor on Star Trek, and what he said is, 
science advisor on Star Trek is not about faithfulness to the laws of this universe. It's about the consistency of made-up stuff. So it's, it's, mm. it's, it's more important to get the laws of, for your story to, to, to gel with the laws of your universe than of this universe. So, so, it's, so like, it's like we a, all know that... Go ahead, I'm sorry. So it's like being a continuity, uh, continuity checker. And that's exactly, it, you know, it, just it, to make sure that just to make sure that you're consistent uh, within the context. You know, a girlfriend of mine just wrote on Facebook: most science fiction is science fantasy with techno babble frosting. <laughs> I think she's right. <laughs> I I disagree with that because I think that the, there is a definite delineation between fantasy and science fiction. I wouldn't call Star Wars science fiction. I would call oh, it no. science yeah. fantasy. Oh, yes, absolutely. We know there's no such thing as a lightsaber. We know there probably never will be anything like a lightsaber. But we accept that in the world, and, and like you accept magic in Harry Potter. Fair enough. And then you have the Force, which is magic, like in Harry Potter. So um, so you, you accept the laws of that universe, and by casting it as fantasy, you manage your expectations that you don't expect really fidelity to science. Whereas you have something like Battlestar Galactica, you hope that the science will be a little better. You expect that. Um, science wasn't really a big deal, a big part of Galactica, whereas shows like Eureka, where I was a science advisor, where science is a different guest star every week, a different you know discipline within science. On Battlestar, science is just about the background to describe the world in which we live. Well, it is, isn't it? It's just holding up a mirror to us, right? Yep. But, but Eureka, that, that had to be a, ten times as much work because all these people were scientists, right? It was it was a different kind of work. I don't know if I'd call it more. Um, probably was a little more, but 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 it was fun. I enjoyed it. And and we in our last two seasons, um, we sort of restaffed our writer's room. And what we ended up <clears throat> with was a bunch of science groupies, <laughs> and they all of whom loved science. And working with that group was was a was an honor and a privilege because they were so much fun and and they really got you know the the, the power of getting science right because sometimes getting the science right is is useful with the story because to some writers um, when you give them constraints they will chafe against it you know and there are still some writers who it's a science fiction we can do anything and sometimes that shows mm. but um, sometimes if you lean into the science. If you explore your options that of things that really can happen, that opens up possibilities you hadn't considered. So you know, it's like closing one door and opening another. What I've noticed about um, what I've noticed about working within predefined systems is that it's if I know that there are walls there, and I know how far away those walls are, and how many of them there are, and all, I find it easier to come up with ideas because I know what I, where I can't go. And that chops out whole swaths of, of uh, potentially ridiculous nonsense that I could be writing. And uh, uh, it's actually easier to, to, to come up with ideas if, if I have some constraints. So having boundaries it, uh, fuels your creativity. It's like writing a sonnet. You know, you have to fit this rhythm and this many syllables, but within that you can say anything. Right, and, and the, some of the... Some of the um... The people who would chafe against um, boundaries and constraints, um, you say, okay, well then why don't you write a 65-minute episode? We can't do that. Well, then you do write within constraints, don't you? Of course, now with streaming, that that also is 
open. It, it's somewhat fluid. <laughs> More than it used to be, which I find very, More, you know, that's got to be change, uh, life-changing for a writer. Oh, I mean, did you hear people com complaining about a recent episode of The Mandalorian? It was only like half an hour long. Oh, I, I noticed that and I thought, okay, yeah, this is short, but this is the length it needed to be. That's it. They didn't, you know, pad the story and make it boring. Yeah, it just wasn't. Fit the it, does, it, it was a good concept, and it didn't have it didn't have fluff, and it went where it needed to go, and it brought us back where we needed to be, and it pushed the story forward. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's what it needs to do. It needs to, you know, they say on a scene by scene basis, your each scene has to either impart some information or push the story forward. That's straight out of Sid Field's um, writing book that most screenwriters the have. Art of, the art of screenwriting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, is that what the name of it? It doesn't matter. I think uh, that's. I think actually, that's I have it right in front of me. Uh, it's on my shelf too. Uh, the foundations of screen. Foundations of foundations of screenplay. Yeah. Screen yeah. Writing. So that book, um, pretty much everybody has it on their shelf, and and I, so, that, do, that, so do I. That idea, you know, that comes straight out of his. But it, it's he's not the only person. So everyone will tell you. And then, you know, each scene has to either part information or push the story forward. And that entire episode of Mandalorian did what it needed to do. It pushed the story forward. So lots of shows need need science advisors. What the heck kind of science was in Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Men Tell No Tales? We read that and we thought, <laughs> what? Science advisor for that? You would be surprised. Correct regional sea life, weather patterns. I don't know. What do pirates need with science? There was, well, you'd be surprised. I get asked that question a lot. And, it, and if you saw the movie, there is a lot of astronomy in that movie. Hmm. Um, it, it, our, our female lead, Karina Smythe, um, was originally thought to be a witch. And then later we find out she was a woman of science. And, you know, at one point she's carving equations into the, into the wall. You know, and she's, um, uh, anyway, so, so yeah, she, she's, a, she understands astronomy and there's a lot of astronomy in that film. Thank you. That actually makes sense. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly it, it is revealed. You know, and also, um, there's and this is one of the things we we go into in in the Hollywood science books. In addition to explaining the science in TV and film, we want to explain the ins and outs of the industry um, from people who've actually you know worked in it, because you know when when Game of Thrones ends or things like that happen, everyone suddenly is a is a screenwriting expert, right? Yeah. The, the same people who were infectious disease experts um, during the pandemic and constitutional scholars, you know. It, Anyway, so the, the, the world is, is, is filled with experts, but one of the things that you know, we like to do is actually go into the ins and outs of the industry and why the science may not be exactly what, you know, faithful to the real, you know, real world. And we like to talk about the, you know, the ins and outs of the industry as well. And one of the things we pointed out in, the, um, in our last book was that we, we, we had a virtual panel discussion, whereas I actually interviewed a bunch of people and asked them ask similar questions in some cases. And they had overlapping answers. They didn't always perfectly gel, which was good, but they you know, often reinforced one another. So I created sort of a virtual panel discussion where I had asked these questions and, it's, it, and at no point in time were two people ever in the room at the same time, but it, but it kind of reads like they were. Nice. And what I intentionally did was I, I got three people who worked in TV only, three people who worked in film only, and three people who've done both. And one of the things I kind of wanted to underscore was that if you worked in TV or film, you may not have a great idea how the other one operates. So if they're in the industry and don't fully understand that other world, what makes you think you do? 
was kind of the, the going. And and so the reason why I went into this, this whole thing is that TV and film are different. TV is more writer centric, and um, the the producers in the show, the executive producer, the showrunner, um, all, all all those titles you see in the beginning, um, all those producers, they're all also writers, generally speaking. So the writers run the show, and for something that has a longer arc, that's pretty much what you need. And the director, while, while you may have uh, relationships with certain directors who you preferentially go to, generally speaking, the, the director's brought in for that week to do that episode, and then you know they're you know they're done. In film, the film is more director centric, and. A writer is often you, you get a writer to do a draft, and then you might get someone else to do another draft, and someone to do this another draft. And the reason I go into all that is I was fortunate that on Pirates of the Caribbean, the um, fifth ep movie, Dead Men Tell No Tales, Jeff Nathanson was the writer from beginning to end. So um, it's often the case where if you work with a writer in an early draft, the in, in film the science that you did may not live to the the final version. Whereas with with Jeff. Um, we were looking at, you know, basically what was in the sky in the mid 1700s that we could use as portents or omens or, you know, in, in our film. And luckily he was, you know, did every draft. And so all the things we discussed eventually made it into the film. That doesn't always happen. Same with Gravity. It was co-written by um, Alfonso and Jonas Cuaron, who is Jonas is um, Alfonso's son. And again, same writers from beginning to end. So the things we discussed stayed. But that doesn't always happen in, in films, which is why it's often the case that that television is so, slightly more accurate than film when it comes to the science. That's a generality, but it's I think it's generally true. And then you have shows like The Star Lost. Oh, don't get started with that, little lord. <laughs> are you are you familiar with that show from the seventies? Yeah, yeah, I was. Sort of, it's sort of like the Blind Man and the Elephant. Mm, yes. Yeah. Different, you know. It, it's well. The premise of the for for the listening audience who might not have seen the show or might not have been around to see the show, uh, because it it was a while ago. Uh, it was possibly the lowest budget science fiction show I have ever seen, apart from the early years of Doctor Who, uh, and it starred Keir Delay from two thousand one, A Space Odyssey, and uh, it was based on the premise that there was this generation ship. And uh, it had a bunch of biodomes, all of which had gotten locked off. And, I, I, think and they everybody... yoinked, I think they yoinked the, uh, the biodome footage from Silent Running, which yeah. kind of dates that. And every one of them thought they were in charge of the ship, and none of them knew about each other. And uh, Some of them didn't know they were on the ship at all. Yeah. And uh, the, the science was just... In the intro to the show, uh, they said that the, the, uh, the ship was on a collision course with a star-like sun. No, I thought it was a solar star. I, that's, I, that was, that's the recording in my head. Uh, yeah, I, anyway, uh, it was so bad that uh, Harlan Ellison was supposed to be the science advisor for that show, and it was so bad. He wasn't, no, he, I think was, he wrote a, a, one of the original premises, and oh. he's got, he had, there's, there's a book on the subject, and the rant was... Prime Harlan is all I can say. And it w it was so bad that uh, he forced them to take his name off the show and instead forced them to use his uh, Writers Guild registered uh, name, Cordwainer Bird, which was his way of flipping, flipping them the bird. the bird. 
Yeah, there's um, Alan Smithy is often the name that they mm -hmm. use for that. There's a, there's a name that if you don't yeah. want your name associated with, they use Alan Smithy. That's that's the the director's guild. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. But um, but yeah, I, I seem to remember what I, what little I remember the Star Lost because I didn't see them. I remember that it just seeming they didn't have a direction, so it was always very different. It was just there was not really much consistency. It might have been because of the different domes. I don't remember because it was a long time ago. But um, but yeah, I just remember it just being just not really a consistent look and feel of the show. I, re I remember uh, in particular one scene, Akira Delay was trapped in a cave and uh, there were it was supposed to be like iron bars or whatever. And uh, uh, to escape, he had to lift the bars when they weren't looking and it was supposed to be really heavy. And he acted like it was really heavy. But when he got out and he dropped them, you could see that they were just made of wood and and <laughs> very thin, thin wood at that, and they went boing and wobbled and wiggled. Okay, so that's, the not most the, ridiculous that's not thing. the science advisor's. Well, no, no, yeah, that's that's totally not their job. That's just crappy production value. But the whole, but uh, as as they did one thing, so they did everything. Yes, well, a um, show I liked better that needed a science advisor was Space Nineteen Ninety Nine. I love that show. I did mark down for twenty four ninety five. But you know, what, what the hell? You know, those people would have been strawberry jam on the surface of the moon. Let's actually, face I, well, here's here's the thing. One thing they did they they kind of ignored is you. Um, we talk about the nuclear waste dumps exploding and pushing the moon out of Earth's orbit. That's not the big hurdle. It's pushing it out of the sun's orbit is the big hurdle. Yeah, that's a much bigger um, bigger hurdle. You know, boundary to cross so yeah they, they needed to get going a lot faster than even they were yeah they would have they would have been kind of Plas hard pressed plasma. to make it out oh. they would have been pl I, I, hard pressed I, I, indeed I used, I used my i used my high school uh what what little mathematics i knew in high school to work out how much energy it would take to get the moon moving fast enough to get it to leave the solar system within uh uh a, a plot useful period of time and it would have required enough energy to reduce the entire moon to plasma never mind well, actually, you have to you have to look at where in the orbit it is because if you're um if you're at new moon you're you're moving in the opposite direction of of the earth's um orbit if you're at full moon you're moving in the same direction and you get a little bit extra kick well that's true and if you if you kick on the wrong side all you do is decelerate the moon and it drops it into earth's gravity well and or it drops into the sun, which is going to make a very nah, short show. It won't drop into the sun because, believe it or not, from an energy standpoint, the single most difficult star to get to in the entire universe is the sun. Hmm. Um, actually, and, and on September 13th, 1999, it was at a, a, a waxing crescent, in case you're interested. Hmm. So anyway, yeah, I figured uh -huh. out that... So the, it's there. Yeah. It's there. <laughs> it was... It I was... love that show. I, I liked Space 1999. That was... Um, you know, I was a big Star Trek fan, that, and and I discovered 1999 with a, a better special effects and, and just a, a kind of a more realistic seeming that might ha thing that happened might happen in my lifetime. And that was kind well, of well, we'd was... seen the moon's surface, we had some idea what it actually looked like, so they had to live up to that. Yeah, they had that grounding, that foundation. Well, it's not only that; it's like the 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 <clears throat> base Alpha looked functional, the Eagles especially looked functional. It just they those things were designed to do stuff, not look pretty. Yeah. So, the the thing that got you into all of this in the first place was your background as a research scientist, 
and uh, planning engineer for, you did 15 years at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I did. Uh, Cassini-Huygens mission to Saturn and Titan. I was, yep. In fact, I was on Cassini. Yep. That was great. It was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Tell us about that. How did you how did you end up there? Uh, I mean, was this what you had gone to, uh, to, to to grad school to do? Yep, I went to grad school and took up space. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you could I, say I, that about many grad students, <laughs> but but literally, literally. I went to. Um, I was actually in a PhD program at Purdue, which is where I'd gone for undergrad, and masters, and they really didn't have what I wanted to do. They didn't have a planetary science program. I was trying to cobble together something. It just wasn't working out. So I figured I, I, I'm just going to go somewhere else. And uh, I applied to UCLA and Brown. And I don't even remember if Brown accepted me or not because UCLA did. And, and what, that decision was made as soon as I heard from them. So I went. I ended up going to UCLA. And I, that, the reason that pick was so easy is because I wanted to ultimately be at JPL. And they were cross town. My thinking was that uh, being in the proximity would be useful. And it was. I actually started working at JPL a year and a half before I filed my dissertation, so that all worked out as you know, as, as uh, George Papard said in the A Team. I love it when a good plan comes together. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so yeah, that that's all I went to UCLA. And and what was interesting is my academic and professional career to that point had always sort of straddled a line between science and engineering, but then I ended up the person who had um, a research assistantship for me, the, my my ultimately my dissertation advisor. Um, was computational simulations. It was very theoretical stuff. So I said, okay, let's do this theory thing. And it, that worked out well. So now my research area, which I, I still do research, is in doing large-scale computer simulations of solar systems, the dynamics, and, and physics. Is that is that getting easier with uh, the new advances in artificial intelligence? Does that apply at all to what you're doing? I, I, I would have thought that the, uh, the the new space telescopes would would have had the bigger effect. No. Well, I do computer simulation, so there's there's a you know you look for supporting evidence um, in, in observations. So either you do a simulation and you look to see if that plays out anywhere you know that you can see, or ultimately you see a system that has some feature you can't describe, and you run simulations to try explain it. In in but as far as going back to AI. Um, I haven't used AI yet for anything I've done, but I have used sort of big data type, um, which is sort of, I think I think of being somewhat related. It's, it's certainly it's a it's a new capability that that is changing a lot of fields of, of science and, and 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 computers and you know and and marketing and, and commerce and but anyway, in the last two papers I wrote with with collaborators, um, I had a large data set from a previous study that I hadn't really used in the paper I wrote for that study. So we went in going with the idea that, you know, there's great stuff in here and we have no idea what it is. So we went in and using some kind of t techniques that you use in commerce for, for sort of trend analysis. And we, we found some pretty amazing stuff. Um, should back up and say the paper that generated that, um, I wrote in 2016, and you may have heard in on documentaries and in, in, on television that um, Jupiter defends Earth from comets raining in from the outer solar system. 
my 2016 paper showed that that's bollocks. It's absolutely <laughs> not. Um, and it never was true. The paper they point to as the source of that, this person never said that. Um, so what I did is I recreated his study with modern numerical methods and showed what the real situation is, that Jupiter sends things at us and it deflects things away, but certainly it doesn't get in the way. If something impacts Jupiter, it probably was not on an Earth-impacting trajectory. So we found out what, what was right, what was wrong, <laughs> but Jupiter is not our cosmic um, Superman. It's more like our cosmic Homelander. You know, if an <laughs> object comes near it, it's going to do something with it, and you may like it, and you probably won't. So... <laughs> Um, that, and then that's what we did in the next paper. Then the next two papers, the more recent ones, is we we figured out what does Jupiter do with some of this stuff. Ooh, and, sorry, dinosaurs. And, that, and that's exactly was one of the, the ramifications. We think we have what is the best model for how the um, the KPG impactor. It used to be called the KT event. Now it's the KPG event. But um, how that object got here to kill the dinosaurs, and we think we have the best model for how that that evolved. And then there's uh, Shoemaker Levy crashing there into was, Jupiter. And, and that was, that was um, uh, somebody I know at, at JPL. And, and we never really talked about Cassini much. We can get back to that if you'd like. But um, somebody I know at, at JPL did some simulations and found that Shoemaker Levy was probably captured in Jupiter orbit about 1929. Hmm. And it, it took that long to impact in Jupiter. But, but that whole process, the temporary captures, was a big part of what led us to some of our, our discoveries but was understanding that Jupiter captures a, a lot more objects than previously thought into temporary orbits where, some, where uh, an object, comma, asteroid, um, centaur objects, which are things that orbit exterior to Jupiter but interior to Neptune, it'll capture them for four or five orbits and they'll go away and they'll come back. So that was a big, a big um, offshoot of our paper. But yeah, the, but Paul Chodas at JPL had found that most likely that was the year of capture was 1929 for Shoemaker-Levy. Now, what about the uh, the Cassini-Huygens uh, probe? You were yeah, the Cassini... investigation scientist for the Imaging Science Subsystem Instrument. Yeah, I was the, the investigation scientist, or essentially was the main visible light camera. We had four um, optical remote sensing instruments on the spacecraft. We had ours, ISS, Imaging Science Subsystem, not International Space Station. Um, ISS uh, was imaged in the in the visible and slightly into the infrared slightly into the ultraviolet but we also we had an infrared instrument we had an ultraviolet instrument and we also had a, a um, multi-spectral mapping spectrometer um, basically VIMS when it shuttered an image it took an image in over 350 wavelengths simultaneously wow, wow. and you can use that for compositional wow. mapping um, for looking for atmospheric windows so we can see through the atmosphere of Titan to the surface below because in the visible, Titan has an atmosphere but it's opaque. So we look in, the, in some of the infrared bands and you can see through the atmosphere to the surface below. So there's, there's usefulness in having that many in wavelength bands. Um, some of our filters on ISS were tuned to those atmospheric windows so we can see the surface. But um, that's so they're like that. Those are the instruments um, that were that took the pretty pictures and, and did the imagery. We had also several particles and fields instruments. We had a radar um, instrument, a radar mapper, and um, no, it was a really capable spacecraft. And you know, it, it lasted 13 years at Saturn. So I think we completely rewrote the book on Saturn in that mission. Oh, definitely. The background radiation uh, had the potential of just trashing the thing. 
not that bad because the rings keep us away from the planet. Um, you can't get as close to Saturn as you can to, to oh, Jupiter okay. because of the rings. And oh, um, that makes that makes sense. Okay, of course it does. So, so <laughs> that so <laughs> space bollards. Space bollards. <laughs> well, you know it is rocket science, right? It is. <laughs> and um, so there, you know, Saturn. Saturn, like Jupiter, has a higher albedo in the infrared, um, a greater than one albedo, meaning it, it emits more infrared radiation than it observes in the sun. But Saturn's almost twice the distance from the sun at Jupiter, so it gets a quarter of the of the solar radiation. So it, it's it's not as bad as Jupiter um, from the infrared radiation standpoint or from the, the, the particle flux standpoint. So the radiation isn't, isn't as bad. There's there's no equivalent of IL that's that's you know that gets gets completely baked in radiation. That's okay. I hadn't realized that. I I've, I didn't. I never thought that thought it through. I guess uh, that the uh, that the rings would uh, act as sort of a big bumper <laughs> to keep you out. Yeah. Um. And, and you know, in in the final few orbits. We actually, um, our navigators were very clever, and they figured out a way to sort of skip over the rings. So we were in a high inclination orbit, high high tilt orbit, that took us over the pole and through the the innermost part of the rings, just basically skimming the atmosphere. So our last few orbits were like high, highly tilted, um, went in in between the innermost ring and the planet, and then until eventually we just nudged it a little bit and pushed Cassini into the to the body of Saturn. Did you get anything interesting as you entered the atmosphere? We took some data. Um, uh, we got a final image of Titan, and I think a final image of another of the moons. I can't remember. I think it was Enceladus, but, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure. But as we were plunging in, no, because uh, you would have to turn the, the spacecraft to Earth point and, and send data. We had it at Earth Point, but we just had the, the radar on, the, the radar emitter, just so we could sense when the signal went off, when, when it basically when it died. So no, no cloud squids grabbing it or anything. Uh, <laughs> I'm being silly. Not as far as you know. Silly. No. Wow, that's an amazing career transition. You're still working on science now, and uh, you're still doing... Uh, you're still at UCLA? I am not. I am. I am actually. I live in Huntsville, Alabama, at the moment. Oh, okay. um, I at the moment I am just working on writing. I'm working on a feature film screenplay. I'm working on the third Hollywood science book. So I am. I don't have a formal employer, um, but I am. Um, I am working. I'm writing. I'm. I'm living the starving artist life. Sounds awesome. And we will be seeing I, you at Mastercon. Yeah, I will be at WesterCon um, last weekend in June slash first weekend in July. So that will be fun. And He's the I, science you know, guest of honor at WesterCon 75, June 30th through July 3rd. Anaheim Clarion Hotel and Resort. Ah, okay. That's, that's okay, new to us. Okay, Anaheim Clarion. That's a new one. The Anaheim Clarion Hotel in beautiful Anaheim. Hotel and Resort. And Resort. And we'll be there, and you'll be there too. As a last resort. <laughs> and if you guys want to join us there, it, the website is westercon75.org. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking to 
uh, space scientist and science advisor Kevin R. Grazier. It has been a hoot and a half having you on the show. Absolutely fascinating. An honor and a privilege, sir. It's been fun. You have been listening to episode 259 of Sci-Fi.Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for April 15th, 2023, with your hosts, Susan Fox and Gene Turnbow. Our guest this evening has been Dr. Kevin R. Grazier, scientific advisor for the television and motion picture industries, and a research scientist and science planning engineer for 15 years at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory on the Cassini-Huygens mission to Saturn and Titan. This episode will air again tomorrow, April 16th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all the airtimes have passed, you'll find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, Pandora, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Podcasts, and on our own website at sci-fi.radio. Sci-fi.radio is listener-supported geek culture radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. We are asking you to visit patreon.com slash sci-fi radio and donate 5 or $10 a month to help keep the station on the air. It may not seem like a lot, but if everybody does it, together we can accomplish great things. That's patreon.com slash sci-fi radio. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by sci-fi illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2023 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Sci-Fi.Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>